I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Well, I hope you found the opening episode of this season with Laura Vandernoot Lipsky of the Trauma Stewardship Institute to be insightful and even helpful as you wrestle with the challenges of the moment. Indeed, the pandemic has and continues to extract a toll upon us all. For some, that trauma has come in the loss of life to someone near to them. Trauma has also come in smaller doses, as we explored with Laura. The inability to see friends, the postponed events, the distancing and the masking. And yes, the arguments about pandemic protocols as well. Beyond just the pandemic, though, the world around us today is rife with an array of negative news and images spilling forward from all sources. Political discord, environmental and social justice concerns, and a general sensation of foreboding have permeated our surroundings and the images that come to us through the media over the last 24 months. In some, they have challenged many of us to find joy with any consistency. Reconnecting with a positive mindset is a challenge that has proven difficult to overcome. So as we explored how to reconnect and reset post-pandemic and amidst a swirl of other difficult issues in our complex global society today, I wanted to speak with an expert on joy and positivity and was glad to find one right here in Dallas. Amy Blankson is the only person to receive a Point of Light Award from two presidents and, get this, is a member of the UN Global Happiness Council, so she must know a thing or two about joy and positivity. Amy is currently doing research in partnership with Google to determine how to make positive psychology strategies stick and create sustainable positive change. She's the author of the award-winning children's book, Ripple's Effect, and has three beautiful daughters who teach her about the joy of positivity and the importance of gratitude on a daily basis. So enjoy this episode of the From My Angle podcast with Amy Blankson. Well, welcome back to the From My Angle episode two of this new season. I hope you enjoyed our first conversation with Laura Vandernoot Lipsky from the Trauma Stewardship Institute. What an insightful and I hope to some of you helpful conversation that was as we started to talk about reconnecting and resetting coming off of the grips of life under the pandemic. It certainly has been and continues to be a challenge for all of us. And of course, in these last couple of years, as Laura alluded to for us, trauma has come to us not just from the pandemic in real terms, uh, loss and sickness, loss of life and sickness, uh, but we've also seen it outside the pandemic with uh, challenging social justice issues that have uh, created separation in our community with um, a political discourse, which has been problematic at best. And uh, even recently, so much talk about climate and the uh, environmental justice issues that surround us. Remember, we adults and our kids are seeing these images each and every day. Sometimes it just seems so difficult to capture a positive, joyful mindset. And so as we got back together as a community and thought about how we wanted to reconnect with one another, I wanted to speak to an expert on joy and positivity and was so glad to find one right here in Dallas. Amy Blankson, mother of three, speaker, author of the uh, best-selling book, The Future of Happiness, Point of Light Award winner, which I thought Amy was amazing, not just from one president, but from two. You must really understand happiness. 
Thank you so much for joining the From My Angle podcast. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. So I like to have guests identify themselves for us rather than me go through the uh, listing of things as I just did, because you are a mom, you're a founder of a couple of organizations, you're a speaker, you're an author, you've done deep research and studying the area of happiness and positivity. So when you sidle up to somebody at a cocktail party or birthday party with the girls and they're like, hey, Amy, what do you do? Or who are you? How is it that you most commonly and comfortably identify yourself when making an introduction? I, I typically hide. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, I, I, I think that it's sometimes difficult to come right out and say, you know, I study happiness for a living. Uh, most people will think that you're kidding. So <laughs> I try to, uh, to lead in with other things. But the truth is that I am a happiness researcher. I study the intersection of happiness and technology. And I come to through this, by the way, of uh, studying positive psychology for the last 12 years and have learned so much about how to really apply these principles in my own life so that I can do a better job of sharing them with others. And I find that they're so transformative that a lot of times it's it's just part of the air that we breathe that it just comes out that we we talk about it. I talk about it with parents. I talk about it with children. I talk about it with business owners. And I think that the world could really use more of this research and understanding not that it's all Pollyanna-ish or mm -hmm. pie in the sky, but really there's some tactical things we can do mm -hmm. in our lives to bring a little more positivity at a time where we really need it in our lives. Yeah, it's it's very action-oriented as you'll help us explore. And as we'll talk about to to your point about studying the last 12 years, you're you're among the first that are really deep into this work. It is not a particularly old uh, or well-developed field of science or psychology. So that leads a little bit to my next question, you know, how did you how did you find yourself drawn uh, to studying positivity and happiness. Tell us a little bit about your journey that got you to, to become the person that hides in the corner of the room because everyone wants you to make them happy. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't want to make them happy, but it is definitely, um, I think it's a big mantle to carry um, to, to, to um, profess that you have all the answers when I don't. So I, I try to be very careful and cautious to say, you know, that I am I am uh, just like you are all out there trying to figure things out in the world. Um, but I did come to this field through um, many, many years of training for my parents who both went through really difficult childhoods and mm. actually broke away from cycles of negativity to choose a different mindset for themselves and also for the way that they raised my brother and I, mm. uh, which must have worked because my brother is Sean Acor um, and he and I are both positive psychology researchers. So mm. Um, it's in the lifeblood of the family, but it's something that we still have to work at every day. Um, I did not set out to be in the field of psychology, though. Uh, I was actually hoping to go into nonprofit management and was on that track when my brother was um, a teaching fellow at Harvard University for the Science of Happiness course when it first emerged. And um, if you've read some of the news stories around that course, that course just exploded. It went from 40 kids to 400 on the first day of registration, which threw the registrar <laughs> into a tizzy with photocopying syllabi. Mm -hmm. And trying to get people enrolled, and the media wound up showing up to say, "Why is why are all these people at Harvard so interested in studying happiness? Aren't they already happy? They're at Harvard, right? They made it. They su they succeeded. They should just 
be like they arrived. And what the story emerged was that, uh, in fact, a lot of Harvard students were suffering from depression and also from um, ideation of suicide. About 10% of students at some point had had, had ideations. Um, and I think it was one of four students um, had had work debilitating depression at least some point in their four-year career, right, which, right. you know, as, as a um, head of school and with a lot of families who are looking ahead at, at education, we sometimes think, if I can just get happy, then, you know, I'll have arrived, I'll make it. And then the rest of my life will flow great. But the research that my brother started learning from the very beginnings of the root of positive psychology was that we've got the formula all backwards. It is not about whether or not we can become successful and then therefore become happy, but really how do you become happy first? because that has been proven to lead to greater long-term success rates in the future. And um, so my brother was, was teaching this course when the head, uh, head professor, Tal Ben Shahar, had some family issues back in Israel, and he turned over all of his speaking leads, all these media inquiries to my brother, who suddenly wanted help starting a business. And I just finished business school. And so he said, hey, Amy, let's, let's start a happiness company. And I don't know if you have siblings, but I, as the bossy younger sister, promptly told him that I thought that was a horrible idea. Um, it was the middle of the recession of 2007 and starting a happiness company, a new company when everything else was falling apart, didn't seem like a great business plan to me. Um, but he shared the research. And as he talked about why it was so transformative, why people need that message in those difficult times, I was hooked. And so I agreed to help him for two weeks, which then turned into 12 years and set me on a new life path. So here I am today. Yeah, which is an amazing one. And I do have a younger sister. Uh, I will not call her bossy because I think she <laughs> might tune in and I don't want to get myself. Uh -oh. in trouble. So you can self you can self identify that way. But yeah, and I mean, this the, the hedonic treadmill that you mentioned, which, you know, for our parents, you, you've heard me speak enough about, you know, how how we want to turn education independent schools into something that our 18 year olds are as joyful about as our eight-year-olds and, and what ends up happening in these high achieving cultures like ours is this hedonic treadmill where our kids are put on it. Our parents are frankly on it too, where the next success is not sating. You know, we reach that next pillar and we get there and, and we have, uh, we have a very brief uh, endorphin hit that makes us feel good. And, and within a, a surprisingly short period of time, we're already wondering somewhat longingly and disappointedly, wow, what's next? Or is this all that is here? I thought it was going to be something grander. And so, you know, I think what you all hit into, um, you know, starting uh, with Mark, Martin Seligman, who um, is, a, is the, I suspect, pioneer, arguably the founder of positive psychology, um, is this really strong vein in current society mm -hmm. to try to understand as the, as the world accelerates how not to lose ourselves in it. And um, wh who's been drawn to your work is not just parents, for example, uh, at your cocktail parties or, or kindergarten get birthday gatherings. It, it's the it, it's leaders like me who've really been trying to figure out how to build healthy cultures and educators like me who feel like school has lost its mooring, that it's become just so transactional and, and so linear in its pursuit that the richness and vibrancy of it um, has been has been taken away. I mentioned Martin Seligman, and, and he's written about a more nuanced definition of happiness, one that moves beyond simple pleasure, right, or achievement to include engagement and meaning. So, I mean, kind of working from that frame, how is it that you would help us understand happiness 
in a richer context? Yeah. So I like to start off by saying, um, by actually defining optimism, which I like Mm -hmm. to use the ancient Greek definition of optimism, which is the joy we feel striving after our potential. And I think sometimes we get hung up on the words, joy, happiness, contentment, what does it all mean? Um, But that's why I like to build all of those into the same definition, um, because I think that it helps us understand that they're linked. They're all tied together, Um, that sometimes we get a cultural perspective on what happiness looks like in America, which is very different from, say, Denmark, where in Denmark, which is now the happiest country on Earth, apparently, um, according to the United Nations Global Happiness Study, which I'm part of creating. So I've gotten to see the inner workings of how that data is created. Um, But I also know that 10 years ago, Denmark thought happiness was silly, that it was actually a superfluous term. And I actually met the director of the um, Institute for Happiness Studies in Denmark, who 10 years ago said he read my brother's book on a subway. And he actually put a different book jacket on it because it's a bright orange book. And he didn't want people to see him reading a book on happiness. So we put a different cover on it. This fellow has gone on to become the director of the the Institute for Happiness in Denmark now. So it's a big transition, but even our words and our language change over time, right? Um, And I think sometimes it's more helpful to think in terms of analogies. And I think back to um, one of my most challenging um, trips in terms of processing what happiness looks like was when I went back to visit Ghana, which is where my husband's family is from. And when we were um, in the country every day, we would walk by this one woman on the side of the street who's selling chicken eggs. And I'm telling you, Dave, she was the happiest woman I've ever met. Just her face was just glowing, smile on her face, sitting on the sidewalk. There's flies all over. There's no customers coming. She's selling chicken eggs. And in my mind, my Western mind, I'm thinking, you know, if, if, happiness is the joy we feel striving after our potential. Her potential is not changing, right? It is flatlined that there's never going to be a rush on chicken eggs. What are we going to do with this? Um, and, and will she ever get out of circumstances? And yet I'm confronted with this idea that here she is, and she is clearly so happy. So what is it that drives her? And I think for her, it was, um, her sense of potential was not limited to financial success Mm. or even material success. It was very much in terms of her personal journey in her life and where that was leading her, whether it was just bringing joy into the world, or if it was just um, growing closer to her maker or whatever that looks like um, that was deeply meaningful for her. And so I want to be careful as we're talking about happiness, I guess the more academic term would be subjective well-being. So there is that subjective piece that's important to think about how it differs by age, gender, race, geography, um, in terms of the way that we process it. And there's a whole other world that maybe we're not even thinking about when we're pursuing happiness ourselves. So you mentioned the Greeks, which is fascinating to me because I had author Todd Rose on my podcast about a year ago. He also has done a lot of work at Harvard and a book I admire of his greatly is called The End of Average. He has a section in it which talks about the founding fathers and how the pursuit of happiness actually listed in our declaration has much more to do, to your point, about one's individual journey to finding their fit. Hap coming from the actual segment of word that means happenstance or fate. You know, we just we we have to find individually our journey to our point of fit where we feel our gifts, 
are oriented to work that gives us back to Martin Seligman's um, phraseology, kind of the sense of engagement or meaning. And so, you know, if if folks can start to think about this, um, whether it's in your individual journey to how you assess your present state of subjective well-being, or more importantly for a lot of our audience, you as parents, right? Tell me about the difference, if there is one, between how happiness is a feeling or emotion or state of mind differs for children versus adults, if at all. I don't know what the research suggests, if anything. I think that, um, I don't have any research specifically on this, but I do think there is a, a difference between the, the barriers to happiness at, at different age points. So of course, with children with limited life experience, assuming that they have not had traumatic events going on in life um, that have shaped their worldview. I think that for us to speak to the average child, the average child um, develops resilience over time, but they haven't had the hardening that we have as adults where we start to lean into happiness. And then all of a sudden you think, you know, I've been there. I've done that. I've tried it. It didn't work. I'm not going to do it again. Or you've been judged and you think, okay, if I come across as too optimistic or too happy, then people will think I haven't really thought through things enough. I haven't been critical enough. Um, or if I'm not critical enough, maybe I'm not challenging the status quo to really create positive change. So I've got to be the pessimist in the room. I've got to be that, that critical person. And the truth is that you can do all of those things without um, without embodying a worldview of negativity. And by that, I mean that we as humans receive 11 million bits of information every single second, but our brains are single processors, which means that we can only process 40 bits of information at a given time. So for those individuals who are always saying, you know, I'm, I'm not a pessimist. I'm not an optimist. I'm a realist. Well, we're all realist, but with 40 bits of information. And the difference is that the pessimists give slight priority to the negative and the optimists give slight priority to the positive, but the real capacity that we want to develop is the ability to see the positive and the negative, and then give that slight priority to the positive, because we know that that's, what's going to move us forward to where we want to get to in our life. So it's not about sticking our head in the sand. It's not about putting on rose colored glasses. It's really looking at the world with rational optimism and saying, this has been scientifically proven to help me to be more creative, to be more engaged, to be more uh, thoughtful, to help me to even um, receive higher levels of promotion, to be more productive. There's all these great statistics that point that point towards happiness, helping us to be where we want to be. So if we know that, we have to actively begin to sift through those bits of information to find the things that are most useful to us, the things that fill us up, that move us forward, that help us to find greater meaning and purpose in our lives. And I think to do that, it takes a little bit of work. It takes some, some hard training that I'm learning from the field of psychology that happiness is actually not a state of being, it's a work ethic. It's something mm -hmm. that you can actively practice and get better at. And that's exciting to me because it says that no matter where you are on your baseline for happiness, whether you're born a little bit lower, perhaps on the baseline for happiness, which some people are, or you've had some of those difficult life circumstances, no matter where you are, every single one of us actually has the capacity to rise up and raise our levels of happiness if we are willing to put in the work and the effort. Regardless of whether you're 12 years old or 32 years old or 52 years old, 
essentially. Absolutely. Right? Exactly. And, Sean's, and Sean's book, Art of Happiness, actually gives, I think, seven or eight. I can't remember, but he actually gives seven or eight steps, which are you know basic things like small wins and, and, and looking at your habits, like really, again, to your point, tactical steps one can take to work toward this pursuit of happiness. Though I will say perhaps editorially that, you know, I do feel like the young people in high achieving segments like the independent school market or up, you know, um, high achieving public school markets here in, in the area um, seem to have a very conditional relationship with happy. In other words, um, it's very externally driven. It's, it's driven by what they accomplish rather than who they are. It's driven by how pleased they think people around them, friends, uh, adults, mom, dad, um, are of them rather than this, this idea of them taking control of that state of mind and, and having uh, their own set of standards um, for what um, well-being or happiness means. So it's, it's just a complicated, it's a complicated circumstance. You've gotten into this a little bit, and maybe you can suss it out for us a bit more, this distinction between happiness and positivity and flourishing. I like this I like this non, this this uh, nomenclature of flourishing, which I think kind of dates back to your point earlier of, of sort of um, the Greco-Roman thinkers of Aristotle and what have you, like this this concept of us uh, richly fulfilling our our sense of purpose and 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 place. So, when you think of happiness versus positivity and flourishing, you, you know, does one take a set of priority? Is one more important? Is there a distinction between that we should be thinking about in our work as parents and individuals? I, I really lean towards flourishing like you do. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you why. I, when we look at the research of how the field of positive psychology emerged, let me just back up a little to give prim mm -hmm. a primer on how the field even came to be. So if you look at traditional psychology, you've got that baseline for happiness we talked about. And if you fall below the baseline, you might be considered depressed and a doctor would take you, uh, would recommend either therapy or medication to bring mm -hmm. you back up to normal or average. And so if you were to ask somebody, you know, how many Advil should I take? They would say, well, the average person should take two Advil. Well, that means that we're always trending towards the average in science. But what positive psychology began to do was to look at who are those individuals who rise well above the baseline for happiness? What are they doing to get there? And how are they staying up there? And how do we emulate that? And so that began this whole field of looking into how do we capture a picture of what it means to flourish? And I think that for me, um, that gives me not only a vision, but also a directionality towards mm -hmm. my approach to life, as opposed to trying to chase a feeling, which happiness is typically a little bit more, like you said, it's on the hedonic treadmill. You've mm -hmm. got that fleeting feeling of happiness versus the longer term feeling of satisfaction mm -hmm. or contentment. Mm -hmm joy, but flourishing for me as a life strategy. And even as I began to connect the intersection between happiness and technology, one of the first things I did was go back to my training and say, you know, if we wanted to create a more optimistic or a more positive digital culture in our schools, our homes, our communities, what does that look like? We, we know all the problems. We can point out all of the flaws and the things that aren't going well right now, but who can really point to an optimal scenario? What does that look like? What would people be doing? And so it's, it's that A, creating the vision, and then B, starting to create a pathway to get there that mm. helps people to come alongside you. And so for me, mm. flourishing is, um, it's a momentum builder. It's a, a movement that we get to walk through together. 
Yeah, it's really cool because it, it's also very activist. So like somebody like Tim Ferriss, who's a, a famous blogger and podcaster, has built almost an entire brand around life hacking, right? Through his book, Tribe of Mentors or, or his podcast, where he talks to you know, high, high um, achievers, so to speak, or people who've really um, been done distinguished work. And what he's, what he's getting at is um, these ways that they have go about their work that are above to them above level, right? They, it raises their performance and it allows listeners to experiment, think about, try um, new ways to flourish themselves. And so, you know, whether you're trying intermittent fasting or a new workout routine or writing at a particular time of day, these are the, the tidbits that you can take from individuals like that, who, uh, in sort of concert with the positive psychology movement have spent a lot of time thinking about how individuals flourish. So if we were to think about the last 18 to 24 months, you know, with all that's gone on that I referenced in the open, but most notably the pandemic at the risk of being captain obvious, like how, how did the pandemic mitigate against the capacity of young people and adults to find joy and remain positive? I think there are two camps here. It, it seems like there's only two camps, those who did better in the pandemic and those who struggled in the pandemic. Mm. Um, I, I struggle to think of people who are in the middle. Um, I think people either found, found their groove or they didn't. And mm. um, I often think of one of my friends who went through a really challenging time, who um, her husband was stationed in the Philippines. He's a diplomatic attache. And when the pandemic hit, he wound up having to be separated from his family for the last 18 months because of health conditions, because mm. of um, the unstable political situation, because of environmental situation. And so his family was rapidly taken back to the States and he has young children. So he hasn't seen them in forever. Mm. Um, you would think that would be the setup for a really difficult next 18 months for him to be the one left behind in all of that uncertainty. But instead, he started waking up at four o'clock in the morning to have dedicated time with each of his three children. So he'd start off the day helping tutor his oldest daughter in French, then he'd play guitar with his middle son, and then he would read stories with his youngest daughter. Then he would, you know, shower, go to work, and after work, he he started picking up tap dancing of all things. I'm like, you know, when I think about my life, I'm like, what am I doing with my time? Should I be tap dancing too? Like, <laughs> there is clearly something I'm missing out on here. But for me, Tim was the ultimate extreme of somebody who flourished in the pandemic in the midst of uncertainty. And of course, we know lots of stories of people who have been going through really difficult times that maybe hadn't found their groove. And so I think that the, the, there are three factors that really deciphered which camp we kind of fell into over time. Mm -hmm. um, one is the level of stressors and the number of stressors that we were going through because mm -hmm. some people really had some serious things going mm -hmm. on. And I understand that. And I, my heart goes out to them and I want to be compassionate and encourage them, um, in every way I can. Um, secondly is mindset. Were you able to rethink stressors as a challenge or a threat? turns out from the research that if you can think about stress as a challenge, mm -hmm. as a threat, as opposed to a threat to your system, you can decrease the biological physical effects on your body by up to 23%. Mm -hmm. And part of that happens because we reroute the place in our brain where we actually process those emotions. So the way that we're thinking about those challenges actually 
depends on how we feel about them. Mm-hmm. Also, a, a great book, if you haven't read Sonia, Sonia Lubomirsky's book called The How of Happiness, mm-hmm. she talks about how if you tell me how much money you make, how many kids you have, and um, how many pets you have, I can accurately predict your happiness levels by exactly 10%. Because the other 90% is actually up to all of these other environmental factors than your perception of the world around you. So mm-hmm. 90% is within our locus of control. So mm-hmm. yes, 10% is very important that is out of our control, but the other 90%, sometimes we fail to see how important it is and own our own power to shape those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the third thing that's deciphered the, the uh, way that we've made it through the pandemic is also the levels of social support. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we, um, sometimes, People have been very lonely in the pandemic. They did not have that social support network or their social support network maybe had different ideologies about how to exist in the pandemic. And so we had we had a kind of bifurcation of families in an um, unfortunate way if they didn't have that social support. We also find that those individuals who wound up giving social support to others were more likely to receive it in return, up to 40% more likely to receive it. So you see this really interesting, virtuous, positive cycle Mm -hmm. where those who were giving were receiving and then they were doing better. So I think there's a lot of factors. Of course, it's complicated, but um, I do think that there's a way that if we can get that vision of flourishing for ourselves, or at least lean in and say, that's something that you, you want to become a better version of yourself through this time, knowing that it's uncertain, that there's some things that we can do to lean into it, like rethinking stress and optimizing your mind with some positive practices and leaning in more to social support and things like that. Yeah, listening to you really takes me back to my conversation with Laura Vanderdeep Lipsky from last week about how individual the experience of trauma is and this idea that we we enter into a period of, of uh, major trauma for everyone with our own individual stories. So our individual stories then really inform how the chapters of the crisis play out for us in, in very unique in very unique ways. And uh, I think that gets to your point of stressors and, and mindset and social support. Each of those are uniquely combined and uh, unique combinations of it for, for whether uh, we're talking about a young person coming to our school uh, or a member of our family or a member of our, of our community. So knowing that as parents and educators, we have, you know, parish 1154 kids coming to school here in a few weeks and and they're all coming with these unique experiences of the pandemic and and we all are raising our kids and each of our three kids your, my three sons your three daughters are uh each each uh, different is there a way that you'd recommend from from the standpoint or perspective of one who studies positive psychology um how we can best help our children and students reconnect to a positive mindset and and, and to flourish as we return to greater normalcy, whether they're on the floundering side or the flourishing side, like what, what would you, what would you suggest? Yeah, I think, um, the conversation of course has been king in this time. So having those conversations and not shying away from asking, mm-hmm. you know, how are you doing? How, what are your concerns? What are your excitements? Um, I like to do uh, with my own children, something called future forward gratitudes in the morning and regular gratitudes at night. So um, in the morning, we will ask, you know, what are you excited about for the day? So you're forecasting, you're already priming them for success throughout the day. And at the end of the day, it gives me some data points to go back and say, oh, hey, how was that? And maybe they have other gratitudes that came up, but now as a parent, I can book in their day where I'm kind of creating a scenario where they're thinking about how their mood and mindset is throughout the day. 
Um, but I also think there's a really important role um, to play around narrative building as families and also as a school that um, when we go through difficult times or through through tragedy or through heartbreak or through anything that is challenging, I think the stories that we tell in the months and years after help shape the way we process those things. And I think the school has such an important role to play in creating a narrative of revival, momentum building, you know, potential mm -hmm. success. And parents have a, a really interesting role to play too in how they um, craft stories with their families. I met with one family this last week who talked about how 2019, they'd, they'd been through a lot of challenges. And so they decided to declare on New Year's Day that 2019 was going to be the year of yes. And they were going to lean into all those things that they didn't, um, they would have been like, oh, I don't know, should I do this? And then so in 2019, they did them all. And now, of course, they're so grateful they did because 2020 was the year of no, <laughs> no, 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 you can't do that. So as we're in 20. 2021 and we're looking ahead for the school year, I want to think about, you know, what narratives are we as parents and community and teachers um, really helping our children craft and how do they process what they've been through? And is it a story of, of post-traumatic growth or is it just a trauma? And I think mm -hmm. if we can focus on post-traumatic growth together as a community, how we hang on to the good, how we formulate to make the world better, how we become advocates for those who don't have as much in their lives um, that is as positive so that we can wrap our arms around them and become a community together. For me, that is the narrative that's going to help us move forward in the long run. Yeah, that's really um, beautiful. And again, an excellent connection to what we talked about um, last week in, in terms of this restoration. And, and, and Laura talked about making space you know, making space to acknowledge the challenge and and granting um, oneself or those with whom you work um, space to ask those very questions that you suggested. And um, we're going to be talking a lot about that with our, uh, at least I am, with the adults that work here um, when I welcome them back in, in 10 days or so um, to give them a spectrum of floundering and flourishing and ask them where they see themselves now and how can they stay on one side or move from one side to the other and then ultimately to recognize as educators um, their power to help uh, the young people here that we're working with uh, to move along that spectrum as well and to see their mental wellness right now is as important as anything that we're going to be doing with them in this community. I'd be remiss uh, before I let you go if I didn't ask you to speak at a summative level. Everyone can find your YouTubes, which are great on the impact of technology and wellness. But, you know, parents uh, who've heard you reference your connection to technology and positivity and, and flourishing, I'm sure had their ears perked to wonder what you might suggest. So a couple of recommendations on the impact technology has on happiness and our boundaries that you recommend we might put in place to help our children, to help us, even as adults, manage our relationship with technology better. Some final words of wisdom from you on that on that part of your expertise. Absolutely. This is a topic that I'm passionate about. I actually started the Digital Wellness Institute last March, so I could literally talk about this for hours, but I will just give you three little words of wisdom um, before we part here. And the first is that as you're starting a new school year, it's a great opportunity to set some new intentions. 
about how, when, where, why, and how, uh, how, when, where, why, and what kind of technologies you want to be engaging with as a family. So um, where, where do you store them? How do you keep them around in your house? What is your policy towards screen time? And all of these great things, they're very individual. They're very unique to families. And especially in this time of like, you know, quasi hybrid work and remote school, mm-hmm. that there's a lot of conversation around what works, what works best for you? What do you want for your family? And to put intentions, post them on the refrigerator refrigerator or the wall in the kitchen so that you can remember why you're doing what you're doing. Um, And then the second one would be to establish some boundaries for yourself. So um, not just for the kids. I know the temptation as parents is to say, you know, our kids are on devices too long, but truthfully, about 41% of kids say that their parents are on their devices too long. So this is a a universal problem. Um, And it's one that I think that we can co-solve together. So um, by establishing some boundaries, maybe you want to carve out some times in the day that are device-free, whether it's it's a dinner time that you're going to share, or maybe it's whenever you have one-on-one time with each of your children, that that's a device-free time so that you don't get distracted by a, a ding coming through, or when you guys are doing family movie night that no one's on other devices. These are all great strategies, and it's something you, you can come up with for yourself. And mm-hmm. I would recommend that commonsensemedia.com has a great family media contract, um, the template that you can use to download to kind of think through some of these issues for yourself. And I would just caution that the key here is not that you set the policies for the kids, but that it's a conversation because otherwise they will find ways around it. (laughs) Um, And then the third one, the last one is to share your goals with others. So if if you have people who are coming into the house that are guests and say, this is kind of, you know, we, we do device-free dinners, hope you'll join us. Or um, if you want to, make sure that grandparents are understanding not to call after certain times of night or things like this. That's a great opportunity to communicate these things. But um, I have lots more resources. I know this is the tip of the iceberg, but um, there's a a quick like digital wellness 101 course on our website, digitalwellnessinstitute.com that if parents really want a little more deeper training for the school year, I recommend that as a, a way to explore that. Yeah, fantastic resource and, and also some some excellent TED Talks and, and other talks that you've given to different um, groups, community groups and corporate groups that uh, frame some of the challenges that we all face around technology. I watched one at some length with the uh, employees at Google, which, you know, was like talking talking to those that create the stuff about how to use this stuff, which was really oh, yeah. cool. So um, it's amazing to have uh, such an incredible resource as yourself in um, the, the Dallas community here and, and for you being so generous of time and spirit to uh, come on and, and answer some of these questions as all our communities uh, get ready to reconnect and reset uh, with the new school year. So thanks so much, Amy. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. On our next episode, we shift our focus back onto campus. As we reconnect and reset as a community for another school year, we have a year-long event in our 50th anniversary that offers us numerous opportunities to laugh together, to find awe together, and to express gratitude together. Some of the very things our first two podcast guests this season have told us help to promote well-being. We will talk with Assistant Director of Development, Kristen Toomey, who has spent the last two years planning for Parish's 50th. I am sure you will enjoy this conversation with Kristen, learning more about our school's history and our plans to celebrate both our past and our future as this school year gets ready to start. We'll see you next time on the From My Angle podcast. <laughs>